This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my very special guest today is Mr. Damien Eccles. Damien, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hi, thank you for having me and thank everyone for uh, watching and listening to this. Yeah, appreciate it. I'm just going to read really quick before we jump into the conversation uh, your bio and then we'll get right into it. So, Excellent. Very nice, short, concise bio. Damien Eccles is a ceremonial magician and artist who lives in New York City with his wife and cats. He spent 18 years on death row for a crime he did not commit and wrote the book Life After Death about his experiences. You can keep up with his upcoming exhibitions on Facebook at Damien W. Eccles and at MagicRevolution.com, both of which will be linked um, in the interview. So check out the links when we're done. And Damien... Thanks again, man, for taking the time to be here today. Of course. My pleasure. Cool. So let's start with, I figure, magic. Magic magic revolution. I really appreciated what it says on the website. Um, and it says, we believe in art and magic as a process of initiation designed to awaken the viewer to higher states of consciousness. With magic revolution, our goal is to share these techniques so others can manifest the lives they desire. So right off the bat, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about magic because oftentimes someone hears mm -hmm. that word and a lot of misconceptions come up about it. Just like any of the other wisdom traditions, I'm sure there's no mm -hmm. shortage of dogma steeped in it. So can you talk about what is real magic? What is it really? Okay, when I say magic, uh, I usually spell it with a K at the end, M-A-G-I-C-K. Yeah. And that's to differentiate it from sleight of hand, you know, pulling rabbits out of hats and right. sawing people in half, things of that nature. Magic with a K is like an amalgamation of Gnostic Christianity, uh, esoteric Judaism, a lot of ancient Chinese, like Taoist energy circulation practices, things of that nature. It is a, uh, you know, it's not this sort of um, free-floating, flaky, let's all hold hands and be friends thing that, you have in the sort of Wiccan community right now, but it's also not this dark, evil thing that you have, you know, the uh, Christians promoting. 
Um, the particular branch, you know, uh, there's so many different things, so many different directions I want to go in just from that one question. All right. Well, we've got you know, time. These things, <laughs> these things I'm talking about right now, this was actually why what you're reading from earlier, the Magic Revolution website. Yeah. Um, me and uh, another guy named David Stupakis and Minton J. Matthews III, um, all three of us formed an art collective that we called The Hand. And the reason we called it that is because our hand is – the tool that we use to shape the world. It's what we use to form our reality. Right. It's what we use to manifest whatever it is we want to see around us. We use our hand. So we called it the hand because we just thought that had a lot of, of symbolism and a lot of strength behind that image. But as we were working on art, we realized that we didn't just want to work on art. We wanted to start a social awareness campaign, which is where Magic Revolution came from. You know, we all, in especially in Western society, we have these preconceived ideas and notions of what magic is based on things like cheesy horror movies and, you know, stuff we've had shoved down our throats in the Bible Belt growing up, all these different things that are not the reality of magic at all. And we wanted to promote what magic is, to make people see, to make people understand that magic is a beautiful, deep spiritual tradition, just as deep as anything you find in the East, but it's been neglected and sort of demonized um, here in Western culture. So we wanted to tell people what magic is, what magic is not, and sort of share, especially for me, share some of the techniques and some of the practices that helped me survive almost 19 years on death row without losing my mind. I figured if they helped me in there then they would be just as beneficial to people out here. Yeah. Um, the particular tradition of magic that initially drew me in and that still holds a very, very uh, fond place in my heart was called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And it was a order of magicians in the late 1800s. Uh, you had people like the poet W.B. Yeats. He was a member. Um, the notorious Aleister Crowley, the one who gets all the attention. He was sure. a member. Uh Pamela Coleman Waits, uh, she is the woman who – she was an artist who created what we now think of as the archetypal tarot cards. When you think of tarot, the image you see in your mind was probably one of her paintings. Mm. Uh, so she, you know, the Golden Dawn led directly to uh, modern-day tarot practices. Um, so it's an incredibly rich and deep spiritual tradition uh, that has always been – Always, ever since I was a child, the most important thing in my life. You know, everything else I always thought was secondary to the practice of magic, to the study of magic. Um, everything else in this world to me is like uh, icing on the cake. You know, and, and I guess some people would say, uh, you know, that's a little zealous. But I think that's when you really make progress in your spiritual practice is when you turn inwards and truly get zealous about it. Mm. I think that's really beautiful. I think that's pretty much the only time we're making true progress is when we're going exactly. inside and, and doing that kind of work. You know, it, I, I've often talked about and written about myself how, and I, I fell into this too. There's a wonderful Buddhist teacher named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche wrote a great book mm -hmm. called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism that kind of lays out, you know, the many trappings we can fall into on the path. We start mm -hmm. to we learn the language we wear the clothes you know we we say the mantras and you know not that any of these things in and of themselves are bad because they're not however we get rooted in that rather than the actual inner practice the inner work so, exactly it's right. discipline you yeah. know a lot of people they want to do 
uh, the novelty parts of spiritual practice. Right. They want to do the the fun parts. They want to wear robes and you know have the beads and <laughs> uh, you know go to the concerts and things like that. But when it comes to the actual discipline, that I mean, it is a tremendous amount of discipline required when you're going to spend hours a day truly practicing. Not just not just to say I'm a Buddhist or I'm a magician, but to actually become a Buddha, to become yes. the magic itself. That requires more self-discipline than most people are willing to put into those things. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I'll often tell people when I'm teaching that are newer to practices like meditation, again, I had the misperceived notion many years ago when I started that, all right, life's going to be great. You know, things are going to just, it's going to be rainbows and unicorns. But mm -hmm. that's not the case at all, man. It brings up so oh, much no. of that darkness. And, yes. and I let them know ahead of time that this is what you're in for. If you if you're ready yes. to really do the work, here's what's going to yes. happen. But that's the only way you the only way out is through, essentially. Absolutely. So. Because no growth comes without struggle, without strife, without pain. That's why they call it growing pains, not growing pleasure. Right. Because when you are really facing things in this world, that's what forces you to step outside your comfort zone. That's what it's the confrontation and the battle. You know, we tend to think of spirituality as entirely and absolutely about peace, peacefulness, but it really is a battle. It's not about an external battle, not about going to war to force your beliefs on other people. It's about going to battle with the things that you don't want to look at about yourself, the things you don't want to face about yourself, shining the light into those dark, horrible fucking places and wrestling with whatever it is you find there. It is definitely, absolutely a battle that is not always fun, but it's work that we have to do. Exactly. I honestly like what you just said. Sounds like something I've written time and again. So I couldn't uh, I couldn't resonate more with your words. So thanks for sharing that. And that's the other thing, too, is not to beat the dead horse. But people, when when they do enter into the path, a lot of them spiritualize their egos rather than peeling away the layers. You know, we're adding yes. on these new concepts. We're adding on this new identity. You know, we're just shifting one egoic uh, identification to another. Absolutely. But again, that's where the real work, the real dedication is you're talking about that. That to me is true spirituality, where we're peeling away those layers piece by piece, you know, going into the core inside. Absolutely. You know, and you'll hear people come up with the excuse sometimes they'll say, you know, oh, well, I, I was acting from an ego place or, you know, that's just ego or whatever it is. If you are aware enough to blame it on ego, then you are aware enough to work on whatever it is that you're blaming ego for. Mm. You know, that's sort of, that's, that's like a spiritual cop-out. Right. It's no different from people who used to say, the devil made me do it. Yeah. You know, now it's ego made me do it. Well, if you're <laughs> aware enough that ego is there and that ego is influencing you, then you're aware enough to stand up and, and not give in to whatever it is. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of laughing as we're having this conversation because on the relative form level, I'm looking at you, I look at myself, and you know, to an outsider that would just pass us by that doesn't know anything about us. The last thing they'd mm -hmm. probably think we're talking about is what we're talking about right now. Yeah, I mm -hmm. don't know if you've come across it, but with the books I've written, you know, when I when I go give talks at times, I have gotten, you know, just people muttering under their breath, you know, rude comments on Facebook, like, what the fuck does he know about spirituality? Look at him. He's covered in tattoos, holes in his ears. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me just how how much dogma there is in the spiritual path too, you know, and, and the spiritual practitioners that are so spiritual and have been on the path for 20, 30, 40 years. And they just look at, you know, people like you or I at face value 
and automatically write us off. Um, so, Absolutely. So I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So I know you can relate, man. Um, and I and so I say that to say that you know I, I really commend that there are people like yourself and others like Noah Levine and and you know from different traditions that are really stepping up and and offering a very heartfelt, sincere spiritual message, you know, and, and that's yeah. beautiful. And that's what the, the younger generation today needs is people they can relate to. And, you know, when they can sift through the bullshit and see, wow, this person really knows what's, what's up, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're speaking the truth and from the heart. So, yes. So thanks man for that. Um, or right back at you. Right. <laughs> much appreciated. Um, I did want to ask too about, cause in, in that, um, in that going back to the quote from your website where it talks about the initiation, is that something you can talk a little bit about? Are there multiple initiations? Or oh yeah. Yeah, so- absolutely. I think initiation is, uh, something that never, ever ends. It's a process. Mm-hmm. I, I think of initiation as being very similar in nature to what baptism in Christianity was supposed to be. Mm. You know, it wasn't a one-time thing that symbolized something. You know, it's not a symbol. It's an actual process. It's an actual thing. It doesn't symbolize anything else. It is what it is. Uh, I think, you know, just the way, the easiest way I think I can articulate it would be like, if you have a book that you really like and you read that book and you get a lot out of it, And then you put it down on a shelf and you don't think about it for a year. And then you come back in a year and you read that book again and you get even more out of it the second time than you did the first time. That's initiation. Mm. You know, it's like this constant unpeeling of layers of going deeper and deeper into reality, deeper and deeper into this process of growth. And, you know, I think for me, that's why magic and art go hand in hand. You know, I make my living now as a visual artist. I I do uh, art shows, um, not just here in the U.S., but also in other countries. And I've tried to take magic and turn it into art because I think they're a very, very similar process. I've always said art was meant to be an initiation. Art was never meant to be something that you bought just because it matched your couch. <laughs> it was supposed to be something that when you walked away from it, you were a different person than you were when you approached it. Maybe slightly different, maybe majorly different, maybe different in a way that you don't even realize there's been a change in you at the time until you look back on it in hindsight years later. But there's a difference. And that's initiation. That's baptism. And I think though the fact that art lends itself so readily to that initiation process makes it Magic's twin sister in a way. You know, it's it's the reason people have always said the art of magic. Mm-hmm. They've always been interwoven, just like, uh, you know, the strands of our DNA, um, the cadaceous of, of Mercury or Hermes, the, you know, the snakes being intertwined. That's art and magic. Mm-hmm. I think they are almost uh, different faces of the same process. And I think when we live life the way we've truly meant to live life, yeah. everything becomes an initiation, not just the couple hours a day that you spend on your meditation cushion, not just the hour a day you spend in your yoga retreat, not just the hour a day you spend in ritual. If you're a ceremonial magician, every single aspect of every single day should become more and more where you are interacting with the intelligence, uh, behind reality. Mm, I love that. Absolutely. In every area of life. You know, often I'm asked, yes. 
you know, what, uh, what is spirituality? And I mean, you ask a hundred different people, you get a hundred different answers or, or where is spirituality? And to me, spirituality imbues everything at all times. We just have to mm-hmm. open ourselves up to it and be aware of it Absolutely. and make ourselves available to it. So Absolutely. I, I love what you said. And, and one note I would like to make really quick about your artwork. I absolutely love it. I am a huge fan. You know, one day I'm sure we'll meet in person. We'll compare tattoos. I've got all sorts of skulls and occulty style stuff. I've just always really appreciated that. Um, but what I love is on your website, not only are you selling this art, um, and as you said, it's how you make your living, but you also made some smaller versions of pieces so uh, you know everyone is able to afford it. Exactly. I love yes. that, man. That That, again, to me, real deal right there. Like, Thank you. You, you get it. You understand that. I, and I'm sure other people understand it's how you make your living. However, you Absolutely. also want to make it as accessible to as many people as you can. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to make it as accessible to as many people as I can. But at the same time, I want to keep it in limited enough numbers so that it still means something. You yes. know, So yeah. that it's not mass produced like something you would buy off the shelf at Walmart. Right. It's something that if you have one, you will still own, you will still know that maybe only 10 other people in the entire world have this particular thing. Right. And I see that as quickly as they go up, man, they're, they're sold out. Like usually really like, for example, the book, you just posted a book, a one, was it like only one something? Yeah. Row? It was it. actually a book on meditation that I had written while I was on death row. And Margaret Cho took it and put it together, bound it for me. Yeah. And I was cleaning my apartment the other day and I came across it and I thought, hmm, I don't really want this, but I think somebody probably would. So somebody out there in the world right now, I, I sold it, which, um, you know, it's the only existing copy of this book in the entire world. And I sold it for $2,000. Yeah. I figure one person in the entire world is going to have this piece. They will get a chance to read an entire book that nobody else in the world is right. ever going to get to see. <laughs> I mean, that's a much more reasonable price than that Wu-Tang album, the one copy that went for like millions and millions of dollars. So, you know, I heard about that. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of drama around that one. But that's a that's a whole nother conversation. Um, I did want to say though, and the other thing you do with the t-shirts, um, so you make these limited run t-shirts that you sell, right. what, how long are they available for? Uh, we put them up for two weeks. Two We're going to do more of them in the future. We'll do yeah. two week runs. And again, the reason for that is because I don't want to mass produce a bunch of crap. Right. You know, I want to do something that's very limited. Like when, when someone gets those t-shirts, I think we had, um, maybe somewhere in the area of. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm guesstimating here. I may be really off, but I want to say about 500 people ordered those t-shirts. Yeah. So still that's a t-shirt that only 400 and something other people in this entire world will have. We wanted them to be still like very limited edition prints. Um, so that whoever gets them has something that we invest our energy in, we invest ourselves in that aren't being manufactured by some sweatshop overseas. It's, me and the other two guys ourselves putting our love, our energy and our creativity and our spirituality into this process and this product. I love it. I bought one. And then I thought after the fact, I'm like, damn, why didn't you get two? Like one to save, <laughs> one to wear. So yep. <laughs> now it's like, what am I going to do when it comes? Do I wear it? Do I save it? I'll, I'll make a game time decision. I'll probably wear it. But it's uh, it's like the sneaker kids say here in, in the city. Like you'll see on, on new sneaker day, you'll see kids lined, lined around up, yeah. the block yeah. and they'll get two pair. They say one to rock <laughs> and one to stock. <laughs> At least the shirts are much cheaper than the shoes are. So yeah. there's that. Um, and actually, before we forget, though, that is that at the 
big cartel website address or where can people find all this stuff? Um, there's two different ones. There's my own personal one, which is, uh, Damien Eccles dot big com, or they can just look at my Facebook page. Um, and and I always, every time I put something new, I post a link to it up there. And then we have separately a magic revolution, big cartel page. And once again, magic spelled with a K M A G I C K revolution, uh, at big com. So either one of those places they can find things. Cool, man. So, last thing I want to talk about with magic is in regards to healing. And it, it says in your bio, of course, you were, you were falsely imprisoned for over 18 years. Don't want to go down that road with you because it has been documented to death. I will recommend anyone who's not familiar with your case to check out Paradise Lost. It's a wonderful documentary or West of Memphis or your own book, Life After Death, if you want to learn more about that. What I'm curious about is can you talk a bit about how the practice, these practices you worked with during that time really helped sustain yourself through them, how they helped with your healing and, and even not just then, but now that you're out, like, well, um, I I think there's many different ways it helped and and many different realms. Uh, you know, just for example, um, the mental realm alone, it gave me something to focus on other than my surroundings, other than my prison environment. You know, I was, by the time I got out of prison, I was dedicating up to eight hours a day to magical practice, wow. to to ritual, to meditation, to energy work, to breath work, um, eight hours a day. And those were eight hours a day when I would become almost oblivious to the fact that I was in prison because I'm so focused on uh, my spiritual practice. So it kept me from losing my sanity in that regard. But there's also uh, other things, other practical things where it helped me, you know, for example, um, I was in a tremendous amount of pain. Uh, at one time, my teeth hurt just because I had been severely beaten several times. I'd been hit in the face and it caused a lot of damage in my teeth. And, you know, in prison, they don't do caps or crowns or root canals or any right. of that. Your choices are live in pain or they pull your teeth out. And I didn't want them to pull my teeth out, so I had to find some way of coping with the pain. And honestly, that is one of the things that drove me deeper into my spiritual practice, into my magical practice than anything else would have. You know, if I were out here, I would have just went to the dentist. I would have just went to the doctor. But in there, I didn't have those options. I was forced to get better and better and better at what I was doing, and a lot of things were trial and error. You know, so for example, I found this one technique where – In magic, you're working with this energy that there's a name for in pretty much every culture in the world except ours. You know, the Chinese call it chi, the Hebrews call it ruach, the Japanese call it ki, the Indians call it prana. We're the only ones who don't really have a name for it. Mm -hmm. So I refer to it as as energy just because it's so, you know, non-denominational a term. Um, So you're channeling this energy into healing. You're channeling as much of this chi, this energy as you can, and you're stamping it with the intent to heal you, to stop your pain. So when I first started doing that, I had tremendous success. The pain in my mouth would completely go away for a week at a time from doing it for an hour. Mm. And then it got to the point where I would have to do it for two hours and it would get rid of the pain for the same length of time. Mm. And then it got to the point where I would have to do it for three hours and it would only get rid of the pain for a day or so. And then it got to the point Eventually, as time progressed, where I was having to do it nonstop and it was still only blunting the pain, it wasn't completely killing the pain as it was in the beginning. And then one day while I was doing it, it was like I had this epiphany, this realization. It went off in me like a nuclear bomb that everything 
on the spiritual level, what we think of as, as the spiritual level of reality mm. mirrors everything that goes on on the physical level of reality. They're, they're twin sides of the coin, you know, one's heads, one's tails. And what I realized is in the physical world, you don't just inhale forever. You have to exhale. You can't just drink water forever. Eventually, you have to go pee. So the realization I had was I'm taking tremendous amounts of this chi, this energy in towards a purpose, and I'm not letting anything out. So I did this grounding technique that took maybe 60 seconds, and I felt this huge flush of energy just rush out of me into the earth. And from that moment on, I never had pain again. The the pain was completely gone. So it's like not only did I have physical teachers of magic in this world, you know, people who had authored books, people who were widely known, people who were less lesser known, who took time and energy to teach me while I was in prison. Yeah. But once you reach a certain stage in the initiation process, I think the magic itself becomes your teacher. Right. And it starts triggering these initiations and realizations, which is what started happening to me more and more as time went on. So that was another way that it helped me su- to survive, just the daily practice of you know, not having medical attention, not having dental care, things like that. It helped me to uh, maintain my health and um, deal with the pain that I was experiencing at certain times. Mm. I appreciate what you're saying, too, about the initiation. Um, you know, I, I that makes me think of uh, there's a saying often uh, in the Hindu tradition of life becomes the guru. You know, you mm-hmm. do not need a saint. I mean, if you have one, that's fine, but you don't need it. Like life is exactly. the teacher. You know, it's just you have to be at the place where you're ready to be taught. Exactly. And if you reach that point, then even a bad teacher becomes a good teacher. Right. Because you're going to be yeah. so hungry for knowledge, yeah. so hungry for the practice, so hungry for the experience that you're going to take it and run with it. Yeah. So even if it's a teacher who's not that great, you're still going to be able to spin gold out of whatever crap they hand to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so let me ask you then, for someone who's listening to this, you know, and, and this is all kind of new to them, mm-hmm. if, if you were to share a practice, let's say that they are going through their own tough time, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, you know, literally anything, a breakup, uh, they just lost a job, pet died, whatever the case may be, is mm-hmm. there a, a practice that you, I mean, I know it's a tough, like there's no such thing as a ballpark practice that fixes everything, but mm-hmm. is there something, whether it's the grounding thing practice you're talking about, or is there just a general practice you might suggest that they try to work with? The thing I, I do magic classes here in the city. Yeah. And the thing that I always focus on for people who are just coming to the practice, I tell them the very core foundational practice of ceremonial magic is what we call the middle pillar exercise. Yeah. The middle pillar exercise is something very similar to chakras in Eastern traditions. Yeah. You know, most people are familiar with chakras, yeah. the seven energy centers that run down the line of the body. Well, in ceremonial magic, there's only five. They're slightly different colors. Some of them are in slightly different places in the body, and there's Hebrew mantras associated with them instead of um, Eastern mantras. Uh, So we focus on that, and what that does is opens us up. I always tell people, you're a straw. Before you were born, you had a channel connecting you to divinity that was completely and absolutely open. Mm. The minute you incarnate in the physical realm, that channel begins to collect gunk because it's never cleaned out. So what doing the middle pillar does is begins to clear out that channel, clear out that straw. So more of that divine energy, the intelligence of the divine, interaction with the divine can begin to flow through you, through your physical body, through your energy bodies. And it's going to do things 
that some words I hate to use just because they sound so flaky and new agey, but I don't know what else to say. It's like it, it automatically starts strengthening your aura. Sure. You know, think of it as like doing calisthenics for your energy body, strengthening your physical body. Yeah. Um, while I was in prison, I actually had a Zen teacher, uh, Harada Roshi, who would come from Japan to the prison. Wow. And eventually, over the years, I even ended up receiving ordination in the Rinzai Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism. Right, yeah. You know, it was the same tradition that used to train the samurai in ancient Japan. One of the main things I realized from that practice is that most Westerners – especially the younger generations aren't going to have the patience and the discipline to keep following these practices. They're not going to sit for, you know, two, three, four, eight hours a day without looking at their Facebook pages or whatever it is. So the whole thing with Zen practice is it's training you to stay in the present moment, to be present with life from moment to moment. Whenever I started practicing the middle pillar, All I was focusing on was doing the energy work and that practice that Zen fosters of being present in the physical moment happened almost as a side effect. Mm. I began to realize more and more that I didn't have to keep bringing my mind back to the physical to the present moment. If it started to drift, it was almost like there was a rubber band that would snap it back. Mm. So I think it's. Zen is almost like a side effect of doing the middle pillar with all the other added bonuses of it, strengthening, um, you know, your energy body, making you feel it makes you feel physically better. Yeah. Um, it has all sorts of things, but that's the number one thing that I focus on for people who are brand new to ceremonial magic is the middle pillar. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that, that all resonates. And I, that's why I love the Zen practice, but also, Zen, you know, has of course been bastardized here in the Western culture. Oh, yeah. You know, everything's Zen, you know, Zen this and yes. Zen that. Yes. There's a great author, his name's Jed McKenna, very influential in my own life. And he he really broke it down about how like real Zen is like the ugly cousin to what we in the West, you know, call mm-hmm. Zen often. But uh, yes. a tremendous practice nonetheless at its core, the real Zen. So, yes. Um, yeah, man, that's, and I, and I, I did, I remember, um, I don't remember if you wrote about it or I've heard you talk about receiving that ordination, excuse me, in the tradition. That's really cool. Um, Thank you. What other traditions have been really influential? I know in the beginning you were saying with magic, it's a mix of Gnostic Christianity and forms of Judaism, Mm -hmm. et cetera. What has been really influential for you in your own life? Oh, you know, magic first and foremost. Sure, yeah. But I found other things that sort of augmented the magic and made me understand it on deeper levels. You know, going back to the Golden Dawn for one second, these people who are members of the Golden Dawn, they they didn't subscribe to a lot of dogma. What they said, they were sort of like explorers and collectors. They said, we want to explore every spiritual tradition in the world, whether it's, you know, Taoism, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's – I forget what it's called, uh, theosophy, whatever it is. We want to look into all these things and find not the beliefs, you know, to hell with the beliefs. We want to find the actual practices. And then we want to find in these practices what works. Yeah. And then we want to strip away the dogma and find what works, how it works, why it works, and how we can make it work better. So they streamlined all of these practices. And that's in essence how we came about the Golden Dawn tradition of magic. Mm-hmm. Um So I would find other elements that sort of branched off from what they taught. So for me, one of the huge, huge things that had an incredibly powerful impact on me was Taoism. Mm. 
And the reason Taoism was is because it, it really is so sparse on dogma and belief and focuses almost entirely on the actual physical practices, you know, the breath work, the visualization, the circulation of chi, all these different things. And once you master those, the very basic practices, you can start expanding on them, taking them into other areas, and there becomes absolutely no limit to what you can do with them. Yeah. So Taoism was definitely, definitely a huge, huge impact uh, on my spiritual practice. The other one was um, as as sort of, you know, you were talking about Zen being bastardized in the West a while ago. The same thing has sort of happened in the New Age movement with uh, Wicca. Yeah. You know, you, you hear this stuff now and it's all about flowers in the hair and the mother goddess and all this kind of stuff. Um, real traditional ceremonial magic can be very hard to understand just because most of the really good books were written in a time when people didn't speak exactly the way that we spoke now, right. that we speak now. So they can be very complicated to read. You can have one book that you study for your entire life and still not get everything out of it that there is to get out of it just because of the way it was written. What I discovered with Wicca is it's basically a um, really, really watered down version made a lot easier to understand of ceremonial magic. So I would take books on Wicca and read through particular rituals that, that were done for the purpose of, you know, honoring deity, honoring divinity, all those different things, and break those down and compare them to what I was reading in Ceremonial Magic. And once again, it would take something that I had thought was so complicated and so hard to understand. Suddenly I would have this epiphany or this realization due to the simplicity of Wicca and say, oh, that's the same thing they're doing here. Mm. And then I would be able to take it and simplify it myself uh, in a way that didn't have as much of the dogma attached to it. But I, I would say by far the three things that influenced my magical practice, Zen, Taoism, and Wicca. Those three things were sort of like if magic was the fire in my life, those three things were like the gasoline that that caused it to roar. Yeah, yeah, I'm very similar in my approach. I have a, a reverence for the all of the great wisdom traditions but you know more of the um the mystic elements of them you know so Absolutely. the zen or the mystic christianity or the vedanta and hinduism you know where it really gets down to the core let's take that dogma out of it and let's let's get down to you know what what is what is it we're really saying here in these great books and traditions? Absolutely. And yeah, and, and the Bible, oh, you know, the Bible, yeah. I think the Bible is probably the single greatest book on magic ever written. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, in what regard? Like I've never read it in that way. Well, I'd like to hear more. About I that. think you have to read it for the instruction, not for the stories. Okay. Yeah. You know, just, just for example, um, one thing is about how the reason we speak, there's a lot about speaking in the Bible. You yeah. know, it begins all the way back in the book of Genesis. Uh, God said, let there be this. God said, let there be that. There's all these different things about using the voice. And it, it continues all the way through the Old Testament down into the New Testament where you have Jesus saying things that we don't even pay heed to. You know, mm -hmm. Jesus is telling the disciples at one point, he says, if you say to this mountain, move and it will be moved, it'll be cast into the sea. It'll happen. Yeah. He doesn't say, ask me to do it. He doesn't say, ask God to do it. He doesn't say, you know, get down on your knees and grovel and talk about how unworthy you are. He says, say to this thing, move and it will be moved. Yeah. You know, it's all about how powerful our words are. And it's because our words convey energy. They convey chi. They convey whatever it is you want to call it. 
it's inherent in our words. Our words have the capability of taking things from the more etheric, ethereal levels of reality and speaking them into existence in the physical world. You know, just another example, there's so much, just on this one topic alone, yeah. just on speech and words, David and Goliath. Um, you know, you can learn all these things from this, this thing. Like when David goes to face Goliath, the first thing he says is, what do I get? What do I get for killing this guy? And they tell him, you get this, you get that, you get this. Number one thing I take away from that is don't fight battles that there's not a reward for. Hmm. You know, in, especially in our modern day culture, we want to, like on social media, like attack people who attack us back. Well, there's no reward there. Yeah. So you may as well just hit the block button and keep moving. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. Because if you do, then when the battles that actually do matter come, you're no longer going to have the strength to fight them because you've wasted yourself fighting and bickering over these petty things that don't even make a difference. Yeah. The other thing is about speaking. I, I used to watch this, this televangelist who said, don't talk to God about how big your problems are. Talk to your problems about how big your God is. Hmm. Because if you focus on the negative, you're feeding the negative energy. Yeah. You're feeding chi to it, enhancing it, strengthening it. So when David goes to fight Goliath, he doesn't step up and say, you know, oh, my God, this guy's a giant. What am I going to do? He's got a sword. All I've got is this little sling. No, he doesn't say – he doesn't magnify the problem. He doesn't say this guy's huge. He doesn't say this guy's killed a 100 other people before me. None of that. He steps up and he looks at Goliath. He doesn't even call Goliath a giant because he doesn't want to feed energy to that. He looks at Goliath and he says, this day I will feed your head to the birds of the air. Mm. You come against me with sword and shield. I come against you in the name of the Almighty God. Mm. So it's you know, there's all these things about using our words, using our voices to shape reality, so that we become co-creators of the physical world. Yeah, that's a very long-winded answer, and it's something that I get excited about. I, I see that, and I I'm listening, and I'm getting excited about it. <laughs> and I love though that that we can sit here and even use the word God you know, in this conversation, because mm -hmm. obviously there's probably no more loaded word in, you know, in our experience as human beings is that of God. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's sad that that word has so much uh, heaviness around it. I get it. I understand mm -hmm. why, so, you know, there's no shortage of fundamentalists and teachings and hateful rhetoric that's been placed on it by man. But, you know, the beauty of what that word symbolizes is, uh, <laughs> is great. And so again, I'm glad that we can have that because there are certain people they hear that word and they just right away like oh, absolutely. And that's it. one of, you know, that's one of the first things that I always cover whenever I do the magic classes because I want it to be as non-denominational and all-encompassing as it can possibly be. I want people to feel comfortable with it because if you don't feel comfortable with what you're doing, then it's not going to work. Yeah. So I tell people you know, I might use the word God sometimes, other times I might not. But whatever name it is you want to put on it, whether it's God, whether it's the divine mind, whether it's the source, whatever it is, when I'm using this word, think of it as the source that all things came from and the source to which they will one day return. Yeah. That's all it means. Strip yeah. away everything else. I'm not talking about a man floating in the clouds and judging you. I'm talking about whatever your understanding of the source of all life and all creation is in a very non-denominational stripped down non-dogmatic way. Yeah. We're totally simpatico on that same deal. 
So as we're talking about the power of words and, and energy, I saw you posted one of my favorite quotes from Rumi, you know, the, the very beloved Sufi mystic, uh, not mm-hmm. too long ago. And the quote is, everyone will taste death, but only some will taste life. Yes. So I'd love to hear, what, what do those words mean for you? I think, uh, you know, I'll go back to whenever I first got out of prison. Yeah. You know, whenever I first got out, nobody in this world understood the level of shock and trauma that I was going through. You know, people thought I was just going to be happy and excited that I was out of prison. And I was, but on some level I was also completely and absolutely destroyed to the core of my being in, in, on every level, you know, just mentally alone. For example, I, I could no longer read. I could no longer watch television or a movie. I would try to read a book and I would read the same page over and over and could no longer even remember what I was reading when I got to the bottom of the page because I'd been so psychologically devastated. I would meet the same per I would meet a person and introduce myself to them two or three times because I could not even retain, you know, their face or their name or, or any of those sorts of things. Um, and I was scared all the time. You know, I, I was in prison, not only for almost 20 years, but I was in solitary confinement for almost the last decade of that. So I get out here and it's a completely different world from the one I knew when I went into prison. You know, I get out here and everyone uses a debit card to pay for things at the store. So there's this little thing on the side of the register where you swipe your card and put your pin number. And I didn't understand any of that. Things that most people took for granted absolutely paralyzed me with fear. And it got to the point where I, I needed someone with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I had to have someone basically babysitting me, holding my hand. And one day, one night, uh, me, Lori, and a friend of ours go to this thing in New York called Sleep No More. Uh, if you don't know what Sleep No More is, it's the only thing I can describe it as is an interactive play. Okay. But that doesn't come anywhere close to doing it justice. You go into a five-story warehouse with a couple hundred other people, and everyone is wearing the exact same mask. Think something along the lines of eyes wide shut. Right, okay. If they, when you step onto the elevator, they put you off on different floors of this building because if you're with someone else, they want to split you up because they say this is supposed to be a unique one-on-one experience that changes you, that initiates you. Not something you just walk through joking with your friends. Right. So they may put you off on one floor and you step out into what seems like an abandoned insane asylum with old rusty clawfoot bathtubs lined along both of the walls. And these women dressed as nurses walking through that don't even acknowledge your presence. You know, you're like a ghost to them. You get off on another floor and it's like you're in a forest in the middle of winter. There's trees. There's a rolling fog on the ground. Uh, There's this pale blue light that only comes at dusk in December. Uh, You get off on another floor and there's an orgy going on right in front of the elevator when you step off and there's a disco ball flashing and there's techno music going. Every floor is different. Well, of course, they see that Lori, me and and the friend of ours are all together. So they split us up Mm -hmm. and they put me off on a floor by myself. And that was the first time, first time since I left prison that I've been alone. And I went into complete and absolute panic mode. I I went to a state of of panic that was so deep I couldn't even have rational thought. The only thing I could think was I've got to find Lori. I've got to find our friend. 
and I was just running through this place, almost going, you know, frantic. Yeah. And then something hit me. It was another one of those epiphany moments, those realization moments when I realized if you don't stop right now and force yourself to go into this experience, to open yourself to it, to take it in, digest it, turn this experience into wisdom, into knowledge in some sort of way, you're going to live in this fear for the rest of your life. So that's what I did. I stopped and I made myself go through this place alone. I stopped looking for Lori. I stopped looking for our friend. I walked through for the first time in over 20 years being alone, walking through this place, making myself have this experience. And it started to change me. It started to trigger some sort of growth. And that's what I took from that moment. I realized I took that lesson and started applying it to everything out here in the physical world mm. to, uh, you know, making myself memorize the subway routes. I would just get on the subway here in the city and go to some random place and get off and get completely lost to make myself feel panic, to make myself feel that emotional and mental pain, that anguish, and then try to find my way back home to to battle that, to combat that. And it's like lifting weights. The more you make yourself face the more you make yourself go through, the stronger it makes you, the more you're ready to take on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So for me, that's also a really big aspect of spiritual practice is just making yourself go into things that scare you, things that you aren't comfortable with. Yeah. That's tasting life. That's that's making yourself expand beyond your boundaries and go into new areas. If you don't do those things, you're not really living. You're falling into a rut doing the same things over and over. You have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to get out of the realm of what you're familiar with if you're truly going to experience life. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, of course. I mean, it puts into perspective. I'm going through some pretty heavy personal stuff right now. And I know that, the, like I said earlier, the only way through out of it is through it. You know, And of course, there are times where I just want to turn on the TV. I just want to you know, do whatever I can to take myself out mm -hmm. of that moment. And as tough as it is, I also recognize that there is no way that real healing or growth is going to occur unless I really face this darkness, this fear, this heaviness, you know, and be with it. And uh, absolutely. I mean, it is in no way do I mean to compare myself because it is night and day to what you, of course, have lived through. But um, I really just wanted to appreciate and say thank you for that sentiment of, you know, being willing to go to those places, you know, being willing to get raw and vulnerable with yourself in the way that you did and really understand that this is the only way I'm going to be able to do it. You know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's not pretty, it's not easy, but that's life. It's tragic and it's beautiful and horrific and again it's, it's what life is you know and here we exactly are. i think we have to learn it's not easy and it's not fun but the number one thing that causes us to grow as human beings is pain yeah the more we experience pain the more we're able to empathize with other people the more it sort of cracks open our shell and forces us to let life in um and, and really what it comes down to is the bigger the battles that you face the greater the victories you're going to have. Yeah. If you go through your life just seeking out little battles, then you're always going to have little victories. Yeah. Yeah. We have to embrace the things that scare us, the things that hurt us, the things that aren't fun. Yeah. And so how, how are you feeling today compared to, I mean, what's it been now? It's over five years, right? Since uh, it was five years on August 19th. Yeah. So about a little over five years and a month. 
Yeah. And so you've been doing this work, you've been facing, you know, the fears you've been, you know, really taking it head on. And, and, uh, so yeah. How, how do you feel today compared to when you got out? What's I feel a hundred percent better than whenever I got out, but yeah. at the same time, I'm still not at a hundred percent capacity. Sure. And I compare, you know, for me, a hundred percent capacity, I think of what I was like before I was sent to prison. Sure. And maybe I never will be again. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, you know, I'm getting older. I'm, I'm almost 42 years old. Yeah. Uh, and I compare the state that I'm in to a state that I was in when I was 20. So, of course, I'm never going to feel that way again. Yeah. But at the same time, I think I'm, you know, like I said, I was talking about all the, the, the fact that I couldn't even read a book or watch a movie or any of that whenever I first got out. So if that's 0% capacity to operate in the physical world, then I would say that I'm probably now at somewhere around 75 to 80%, mm. what I would consider for me 75 to 80%. The thing that scares me is I notice a lot of people you know, that have been out here their whole lives can't even do the things that I'm doing now right. whenever I consider myself at just at like 75% capacity. Yeah. And and things like that are a little scary. And, and it's those things that I was thinking of the day that I wrote that quote that you're talking about, the Rumi quote about how yeah. everyone will taste death, but not everyone will taste life. Yeah. Well, thank you again for sharing. Uh, and and I'm so glad you are here and that you're stepping up and you're doing the work you're doing. You know, you're, you're bringing this healing, you're shining this light and into the darkness and along with the darkness. And, you know, we're all, I love Ram Das has a quote, you know, he says, we're all just walking each other home. You know, that's something I try to keep close to my heart and remember, you know, mm -hmm. as I'm, I'm going about my day. So appreciate that. Um, something else I want to ask you about <clears throat> is, you know, you've talked about your youth, and you and I were very similar in, in regards to not our, I, I grew up in a rural area, not as bad as yours, but I was very much the outcast listening to Metallica and Slayer and Anthrax and, you know, skateboarding and these things were very much frowned upon. And, you know, I know in, in your situation, it was even a hundred times worse than that. Today, I do a lot of work with the younger generation and kids who, of course, aren't feeling like they fit in, you know, what, for whatever the case may be. What I, I hate to ask for advice, but, you know, do you have anything you would say to them, you know, about finding their way? You know, ki these kids that are getting bullied because they do like stuff that's not out of the, the norm, you know, or, uh, you know, just that are finding a hard time loving themselves for who they are, you know, trying to find that balance, you know, of being <clears throat> who I am and being OK with who I am because I'm being pressured and I'm being picked on and I'm being laughed at and I'm being this or that. Because I am different, you know, so not even spiritually mm -hmm. speaking, but, you know, do you have any thoughts on that or? Uh, oh, my God. That's one of those things also that it could go in so many different directions. Of course. You I know, know, it's a big question. Yeah. One of the things I always think that I always try to share with people is, uh, you know, for me, spiritual practice is always about practicality, about what's practical, not about, you know, thinking good thoughts and let's hold hands and be friends. It's about what works. Yeah. So it's in some ways it's a very the way I approach things is is not always the gentlest way because I think for my myself for me myself I don't necessarily respond to the gentlest forms of teaching. Yeah. Like I said, I learn the most from the hard times. I learn the most from the times when I've experienced pain. 
So the things that I always tell people is you can either be a victor or you can be a victim. You can't be both. If you're going to sit around and cry and be all angsty and say, you know, oh, poor me, then you're going to live as a victim your whole life. Mm. Um, you know, as, as harsh as it can sometimes sound, I think one of the best spiritual practices, the best forms of spirituality that you can j- just say to somebody is knuckle up, buttercup. <laughs> this ain't no fun ride. You know, you better dig in. And get ready to fight for for what you love, for what you want, or give it up. Because that's your two options. That's your two choices. You can give up the things about yourself that the world don't like, that the world torments you for or taunts you for. Or you can embrace those things and say fuck you to the rest of them. It it, it really is one or the other. And if you give up the things you love just because of the pressure that outside sources are putting on you – then you're not really alive anyway. You're not you're not living the life that you're going to enjoy or, or anything else. Um, also, you know, one thing I try to point out is when people do have things like that that make others single them out. I say the reason they single you out is because you're not embracing mediocrity. Mm-hmm. This world loves mediocrity. Yes, they do. This world loves football games and bars and social media and things that don't have any point or purpose or growth or anything else behind them. So the fact that you are doing something else that threatens that mediocrity lets you know that you're on the right path. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I always think when when someone criticizes me, I'll look at that person and as unspiritual as this sounds i say as long as you think i'm okay as long as you think i'm fucked up i must be okay it's the minute you start thinking i'm okay that's when i know i got a problem (laughs) yeah man i i think i'm gonna have to utilize that motto in my own life because i've run into no shortage of those situations um that's a really good one yeah that's well said man i was just writing the other day using those exact words about knuckling up you know and how Mm -hmm. you know if if you're really dedicated to this thing and and really waking up you have to knuckle the fuck up time and time again you know and yes you do just when you think like you don't have it anymore in you to do it you're gonna have to do it you know right after it again so you know what you were talking about while ago is people have this idea that once they start the spiritual practice whether whatever it is whether it's buddhism or hinduism or magic whatever it is they think suddenly life is going to be all sunshine and and unicorns and all this thing i always tell people the reason we're here the reason we're here period in this world is to grow to learn to develop well when you take on a spiritual practice what you're doing is causing your growth to accelerate Mm -hmm. Therefore, you're just going to come into more and more of those hard things. That doesn't mean your life is necessarily getting any harder because you are going to have to face the same lessons anyway. It just means you're getting to face them sooner than you would have. Would you not have consciously and deliberately chose to uh, accelerate your growth and maturity? Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. So let me, as we're winding down here, I think... Maybe the last question I'll ask you, and then we'll talk about your events coming up because I'd love to help you promote those as well. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, Hope. Let's talk about hope. What makes you, when you look around the world today, what makes you hopeful? You know, once upon a time, I I read a story 
and there's a character in the story who says hope is that you dangle in front of the ass to keep plodding endlessly forward. Mm. And when I read that, it it struck something in me to the to the marrow of my for people who sit around and don't take an active role in trying to shape the future, mm-hmm. in trying to shape the reality that they want to see manifest in the physical world. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like uh, giving up in a way. I think what what I think hope and faith are two different things. So uh, what I usually say for me, faith, the things that I see that give me faith are the same things that sort of uh, piss me off in a way. You know, for example, um, I always say, for example, Facebook, I say Facebook is the trailer park of the Internet. (laughs) It's just it's despicable. It's horrible. It's where people come to aggressively attack and demean you or at least me in some way. But at the same time, I see the potential that's there. You know, for example, when Jesus was alive, the people that Jesus spoke to, he never went more than a radius around where he was born at. The number of people he spoke to his entire life wouldn't have been more than 30,000 people. Mm. Today, on Facebook alone, I think I have like 130,000 followers. That means in two seconds, I have the potential to reach more people than Jesus reached in his entire life. So it's like you can put you can take these things that most people use for a destructive or ego feeding sort of way and you can utilize in a spiritual way that has the potential to trigger tremendous spiritual growth and awakening in people. You know, you can use Facebook to cause initiations, Mm -hmm. to awaken people. That's sort of what gives me faith, seeing these things and the potential of of what is now possible because of these things that has never at any other time in the history of you possible. uh, That's what makes me excited. That's awesome. And and I appreciate your take on hope. That's a word that I've often felt conflicted about. It was important to me when I was younger. Got a tattooed on my knuckles because it was so important. But this was a time when I was hopeless. I was broken. I, you know, yeah. I, I was just in this really bad place. So it's tricky for me when I talk about it because I understand how some people, if there isn't an action that they can take in that moment, literally there's nothing they can do. All they have to hang on to is hope that, okay, you know, it's going to get a little better, but I really love, I I love how you respond that, you know what, you do need to take those actions and those steps because it is, it it can be a carrot that is dangled out in front, just like you said. So, and maybe sometimes it's splitting hairs, you know, for some people, the words faith and hope may mean the same thing, you know, and, and in which case that's fine. I think it's all about, you know, what, I think we all have a language that we speak to ourselves that no one else may particularly understand. Sure. Yeah. And for me, that's where some of those terms and terminology and ways of thinking come from. Yeah, totally hear you. Well, so let's talk really quickly then about what do you have coming up? What What's going on? And I mean, I know you're a very, very busy man, so I'd love to hear about some of the events where people could find oh, you. Oh, so the, um, the next event that I have coming up will be October 15th, and it will be at uh, Copro Gallery in uh, Santa Monica, okay. right outside of L.A. Uh, it's it's a, an art show. I'll be there um, to help talk about the art, explain things, just meet, meet people who come up to see it. Um, 
what I did with this one, for me, art is always about magic. For me, when people look at my pieces, what I do for the most part are what I call talismans. And people always ask me, what is a talisman? And I say the, the easiest way to describe it is a talisman is a prayer put into physical form. So that's what I usually offer up as my art projects are prayers given physical form. So this time at the one on October 15th, um, I decided to work with many other artists where I would start on a piece and tell them what it represented, tell them what it meant to me and give it to them to finish. And the object of it was to come across with something that is a a combining and a mixture and an amalgamation of both of our energies. Mm. So that's that coming up, October 15th in Santa Monica. The next one will be December 10th in Chicago, and I will actually be teaching a magic class in Chicago. Uh, the gallery is Ars Memoria Gallery in Chicago, and I'll be doing a magic class the night before the opening. Um, it's still not too late. If people hear this in time, you can still sign up for it. Just contact the gallery. Cool. Uh, it's the, the magic class itself will be the night of the ninth. The art opening is the 10th. And after that will be uh, another show in Massachusetts on February the 10th at Black Veil Tattoo and Art Gallery. Cool, man. And people, so again, they can, which, what are the best websites? I mean, I know on your Facebook page, you said they can find this stuff, but is there a website that has these events listed? Uh, no, okay. I'm horrible at that sort of thing. <laughs> um, if, if you can find me on Facebook yeah. or Instagram or Twitter, any of those things, you just use my name. And what I usually tend to do is just post it. I'll start posting about oh. it a couple weeks leading up to those things. Excellent. So if you just look for, you know, Damian Eccles on pretty much any social media, uh, I'll be talking about them on there as we get close to them. Very cool, man. Well, again, so for the audience, I'll, of course, link up your personal Big Cartel, the Magic Revolution website there, Big Cartel. So anyone that's been uh, listening or watching this conversation, the links are right uh, below you wherever you're looking on your computer. Click on them. Incredible artwork. Um, check out Damien's book, Life After Death. I mean, so much wonderful stuff you've brought into this world that uh, I have a lot of respect and gratitude to you uh, for. So, thank you. Yeah, man, and thank and thank you again for taking the time to do this today. It's been a great conversation. I know we could have talked probably for another ten hours about you know a million different things. So, somewhere down the line, we'll have to do this again at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thank you for your time, Damien. Thank you for having me, and thanks to everyone for listening again. Cool. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.